You're listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org. For generations in the season following Easter, Christians have turned to a particular story about one of the 12 disciples, a story about Thomas. Today, we're going to hear Thomas's story, or at least a part of it. Let's listen to these words from the Gospel of John. The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 25 through 29. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the 12, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus replied, Do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who do not see and yet believe. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week we heard the story of Easter, how Jesus died and was raised from the dead unexpectedly. When Jesus came back, he appeared to his disciples to show them that his resurrection was real, and they were terrified. But Jesus told them, it's okay. Be at peace. He showed them his wrists, where there were wounds from the nails. He showed them his side, where he had been pierced while he was on the cross. It was a powerful moment shared by some of his closest friends. But one of the disciples was missing. Thomas, called Didymus, the twin. The other disciples say to Thomas, hey, we have seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. He's back. But Thomas, since he wasn't there, since he didn't experience what everybody else had experienced, he says famously, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Suddenly, it's almost a week later in scripture, and Thomas still hasn't seen Jesus face to face because Jesus is off doing a whole bunch of other things. And the disciples are still, as they had been a week prior, hiding away in somebody's home because they're scared to show their faces in public, even though they know the truth of the resurrection at this point. And they're all huddled there with Thomas, and Jesus enters the house. Just like with the other disciples, Jesus shows Thomas his wounds. 
He offers to let Thomas touch his hands and his sides. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. A statement of faith. Every year, shortly after Easter, we encounter Thomas and this post-resurrection story. An entire Sunday's worth of focus on Thomas. Today is the day to tell Thomas's story. So who is this guy anyway? Who is Thomas? Well, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are remarkably vague. They don't have many details on Thomas, but John's Gospel gives us a couple of significant vignettes. There's a moment when Jesus is called back to Jerusalem to help his friend Lazarus, who is sick. And one of the disciples says, Jesus, you know, the authorities in Jerusalem, they wanted to stone you. Are you really going to go back to Jerusalem? And Jesus, uh, very loosely paraphrasing here, says, yeah, I'm going to go see Lazarus. I'm going I'm to go back. And Thomas speaks up and he says, let's all go. If Jesus is going to die, let's die with him. Sounds like a pretty significant statement of faith to me, doesn't it? Doesn't it to you? It doesn't sound like the doubting Thomas that we hear so much about later in Scripture. Sounds like he's pretty all in on this Jesus fellow. So there's another moment when Jesus is giving one of his many speeches in the Gospel of John, and Jesus talks about how his father's house has many rooms and how he goes to prepare a place. You've probably heard this passage before from the beginning of the gospel. And he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And again, Thomas is this disciple who speaks up and interjects and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going actually. So how can we know the way to where you're going if we don't know where you're going? And then Jesus famously goes on and he answers and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thomas's question here is so logical and it's so heartfelt. And he's simply saying, you say we know the way, but we don't really know where you're headed to. Not really. Perhaps Thomas is the engineer of the group. He's the one who wants the details. Stories and metaphors might not be enough for him. He wants the tangible. He wants to know what the plan is. You know people like this, don't you? According to some traditions, Thomas traveled to what we now call India after Jesus ascended into heaven. Other early sources say he went to a region that was called Parthia at the time. Now, all of the disciples went and preached the gospel after Jesus ascended, so Thomas wasn't unusual in that. Uh, Peter preached in Italy and Rome. Philip went to what is now Turkey. Some of the stories as to the details of where all the disciples went and what they did, they get a little bit murky through the uh, lenses of time, and so it's not entirely sure how much, it's not entirely uh, clear how much is fact and how much is sort of legend, but what is clear is that Thomas took one of the longest trips of any of the disciples. He traveled the farthest. One early apocryphal text, the Acts of Thomas, claims that Thomas made it all the way to modern-day Chennai, which is on India's east coast, more than 4,000 miles from Jerusalem. In those days, that was unheard of to travel that far. Tradition also tells us that Thomas was a martyr, someone who died for his faith. Some legends say he was lanced or he was speared because he was spending too much money on charity, on helping people. 
Thomas's faith was so strong, it led him to travel miles, thousands of miles to evangelize. Thomas's faith was so strong, he was willing to die with Jesus early on before the resurrection had happened, before they really truly knew who this Jesus fellow was. Ultimately, Thomas was a martyr for his belief. And yet still throughout history, Thomas, and Thomas alone of all the disciples, has been saddled with this unfortunate title, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas, the one who doubted. I read a reflection this past week written by an Episcopal priest named Reverend Marshall Jolly, which is a fun name. And he argued that Thomas is in some ways our fall guy. Many Christians read the scripture every single year after Easter. And basically, Jolly says that for centuries, we've used this passage as a way to sort of blame someone else and distance ourselves from our doubts. None of the disciples blatantly point a finger and say, man, Thomas, you really messed things up here. But some early Christians like St. John Chrysostom wrote that Thomas is held to blame for his unbelief, in some way to blame for having doubts. Early art pieces portray Thomas as obstinate, incorrigible, the guy who just can't get it together. And so in the article, Reverend Jolly writes that history has many examples of Christians really rushing to position themselves in such a way so that we are for Jesus and we're against anybody who is against Jesus, right? So there's us and there's them. And he argues Thomas has these doubts and that brings him into this gray area that makes him almost against Jesus because he's questioning like, could this really have happened? I don't know if I believe it. I don't know if I believe it. And because of that gray area, he's remembered forever as doubting Thomas. This guy who's kind of over there by himself. In some ways, it makes sense. We know about the us versus them dynamic pretty well by now, don't we? If we can just find someone to blame, if we can find someone whose fault it is that things are not going the way that they're, go that they're supposed to go, and we say, okay, it's that other political party. We say it's the other team. It's that other community. It's that nebulous and so troubling, those people over there. We allow ourselves to believe that they have problems. He has a problem. She has a problem. But somehow we don't, not really, that they cause the problems. It's not our fault. We're for Jesus, right? Continuing to call him Doubting Thomas allows us to create some distance. Doubt plagues him. It doesn't plague us. We've got it together, God. We've got it together, Jesus. Well, the reality is everybody doubted Jesus' resurrection, Everyone. The women arrive at the tomb to find it empty, and their first reaction is to be terrified. And then they run and they tell the men, and none of the men believed it either. And so the men all have to run to the tomb, and they still don't quite believe it at first. The rest of the disciples, only a week prior, had been locked in a room, still doubting the reality of the resurrection until Jesus appeared among them. And Jesus showed these other disciples his hands and his side. It's just that apparently Thomas wasn't in the room with them. He really only wanted what everyone else had already experienced, that face-to-face -face encounter with the risen Christ. 
There were plenty of people in the story who had doubts. Everyone had doubts. Thomas gets singled out here, but he is really not the only one in this story. Thomas then becomes sort of an embodiment of the other, that person that we blame for the things that are happening around us. If only he had it together, we say. It happens this way in part, I think, because we're afraid that we might be exactly like Thomas. Because we have doubts too, don't we? We make mistakes too, don't we? We're the ones who ask too many questions. We're the ones who are late to get to the party. We're the ones who don't say the right thing, who don't do the right thing, who seem to mess it up for everyone else. At least from time to time, we all have those moments. For so long, the capital C church has expected people to come to church as fully formed Christians, people who come to Christ without any qualms, people who have their faith in quotes together. And there are congregations even today where if you walk in the doors with doubts or questions, people distance themselves. It's not that you're blamed for having questions, not really, not exactly. It's just that sometimes the the church, the capital C church, the broader church, has treated questions like they're a bad thing, as a sign that something's not right. When in fact, questions have been part of our story since the very beginning. Questions like the one Thomas raises early in the Gospel of John, how can we know the way, Lord? Or people throughout scripture who ask, how can this be? Question after question after question appears in scripture. And so our calling as Christians is to make space for people like Thomas, knowing that he's just like us. In fact, this is interesting. That's what Thomas did with the rest of his life, according to tradition. He traveled to far off places and he preached about Jesus to people who had never heard Jesus' name, never heard Jesus' story, they must have had questions. They'd never heard the story. They must have had doubts. They must have wondered, who is this Jesus fellow? But Thomas dedicated himself to working with people like him who may not have been certain about everything all of the time, who may have asked some questions, who may have wanted to know some of the details. Our task as a contemporary church is to continue to create a space where we embrace questions and wonder, and we're okay with things occasionally being just a little bit ambiguous. We're tasked with creating a culture where it's understood to be healthy, to voice our uncertainty, like the disciples did so many times throughout the Gospels, a place where questions are welcomed, where skepticism is not decried where amazement and dialogue and telling the full story are central and valued. So this morning, if you have questions, you're in good company. If you have lingering uncertainties or fears, this is exactly the right place to be. And also, 
if you're ready to follow Jesus in the midst of the uncertainties, in the midst of the questions, in the midst of all of those lingering feelings and emotions and thoughts, let's go. There is space for you on this journey. Jesus said to Thomas, do you believe because you see me? Happier those who don't see and yet believe. That's us. That's us here and now. We see signs. We hear stories. And like Thomas, may we too have faith that leads us to proclaim in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the qualms, in the midst of all the hustle and bustle and chaos of our lives, my Lord and my God. May we proclaim the risen Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly sermon from Clarkston United Methodist Church in Michigan. We are a church dedicated to connecting people to people and people to God. To learn more, visit us at clarkstonumc.org.